Have you ever thought about how Jesus planned for his message to reach out to the ends of the earth? I mean, he did a lot of the groundwork. It's amazing his ministry only lasted probably three years, maybe up to five years, but his public ministry was relatively brief, if you think about it. And he appointed leaders, right? These would be the disciples, and he gave them a message to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe and be baptized. Uh, He gave them a way of life. What is the right way to live? So, of course, they would carry forward the way from the Ten Commandments that they knew from the Torah, but then he gave them new commandments, a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another as, as I have loved you, right? So he gave them a way of life, he gave them a message, he gave them things to do, right? Go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Lord's Supper or Communion, do this for the remembrance of me. Okay, so he gave them things to do, he gave them a message, he gave them leadership, but how did he think, how did he plan that this message was really going to get out to the ends of the earth? Because ironically, his own ministry was really in a relatively small piece of land, that chunk of land that today we call Israel-Palestine, it's about the size of New Jersey for those of you who are from the States, Um, but that's really where he stayed. What was his plan for seeing that his message would get out to all the nations of the earth? So that's the question that I have today. Okay, there we go. So this is a picture right here of me with my youth group in Puebla, Mexico. I I was not raised in a Christian household. We didn't really go to church. I didn't really know anything about the Christian religion. Sometimes people tell me, well, I was, we were very nominal Christians. And I think, you know, that at least you knew some stuff. You probably knew the Lord's Prayer or John 3.16. At least if you wanted to go to church, you had a local church that you could go to. And if you wanted to talk to a pastor, you probably had someone that you could call up. But I was not even raised in a nominal Christian household. But when I was living in Puebla, which is where I heard the gospel and placed my faith in Jesus Christ, um, that uh, was a small church, and we had a youth pastor. His name was Paul. He was a missionary from the States. And Paul really had a heart for discipling the young men of the church especially, but the youth in general. And this was on a camping trip that me and the other guys from the church did with Paul. Now, Paul, he would come over to my house, and we would study the Bible together. And we would study things like 1 John, and I think we studied James. But from those actual Bible studies, I'll tell you that I don't really remember anything that we studied. Do you know what I do remember, though? That he would drive all the way across town to spend some time with me. I remember running errands with him. I remember spending time in his home and seeing how he treated his wife and his kids. A Christian household, something I had not seen before. That's what I remember From that example. So I want to uh, uh, suggest that Jesus' method, that Jesus' strategy for seeing that the gospel should reach unto the ends of the earth is in fact discipleship. Discipleship. Go and make disciples. He didn't say go and start Bible studies. Those are not bad, obviously. He didn't say go and start seminaries. Those are not bad. I, I work at a seminary. I like seminaries. These are all good things, right? He didn't say, Don't go and start men, men's groups. Go and start online ministries. Okay, those are all fine. But the main thing that he focused on was one thing and one thing only, and that was making disciples. But I think there's kind of a problem with the word disciple that we have. We tend to think of disciple as a student, someone who sits down at a desk or at a table, 
and who listens to someone lecturing and maybe takes notes, and then maybe there's like an exam or a test or something like that. But that's really not what the Greek word means. The Greek word is mathetes. I, sorry, I didn't write down the Greek here. But the Greek word is mathetes. And I want to take today, take this morning, to try to explore what that means. We're going to see an example of that from Jesus' own ministry. We're going to see some examples from Paul. And then we're going to take a look at um, a great example from the Old Testament, from Elijah and Elisha. So in case you haven't picked it up on it yet, when I say tradition or living faith, uh, I think the answer is we want to have both of those, right? We want to have both of those things. You know what a great Christian tradition is that I hope that we don't get rid of? Meeting together on Sunday mornings. You know that started with us. And we have been doing that all around the world since the beginning of the church. Meeting on the first day of the week to worship and to learn and to encourage each other, that started with the Christians. So here's two verses that I, that I wanted to uh, talk about. Uh, we read one of them earlier. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So the word tradition, it's a Latin word. That's not a Greek word. And it, uh, it is traditio, and it means to hand something on. To, have, to t take something that you already have and to hand it on to another person. Um, the, a, an example of a physical tradition that I have is the ring that I'm wearing. This belonged to my grandfather, Duane. He passed away, and it was given to my uncle, Mark. Uncle Mark passed away. He didn't have any kids, and it was given to me. It was literally handed down from generation to generation. And, and that's what we find here in this letter to Timothy, right? We find Paul saying, hey, what you have heard me say, the teachings you have heard me proclaim in public, right? Not my own private, um, you know, kind of flights of fancy, but what I've taught in public, I want you to take that message and I want you to teach that in public too. You hand down the message that you have heard. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Paul is saying, hey, this is not originating with me. I received this, and this little formula right here, if you read the rest of it in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a really, really old formula. It probably goes back to about one to two years after the resurrection. And Paul had learned this little formula, or this kind of confession, or a, maybe a very early creed, you can call it what you want, uh, and he had received this presumably from the disciples who were there in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm passing this on to you, Corinthians. So yes, we have traditions, and of course we want to make sure that our traditions are always faithful to Scripture and faithful to what God has given us. But tradition, this idea of having something and handing it on intentionally to the next generation, spiritual generation, or even a biological generation, that is a profoundly biblical thing. So... Um, and now we have Elijah and Elisha. I'm going to go ahead and read this story. This is in 2 Kings chapter 2. So you can either open your, uh, the black Bibles that you have, or you can do what most Christians and Jews have done throughout most time, which is to just listen very carefully, okay? And this is 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, 
And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know, or do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and the other, and Elisha went over. So I think that what we have here is obviously a very important story about Elijah and Elisha and kind of the passing on of really that tradition, right? That passing on of authority in this case of being the main prophet of the people of Israel. And, uh, and I love this, this uh, image right here where Elisha is holding on to the, the cloak, uh, the garment of Elijah. We get that again in the New Testament, right? When someone is holding on to the hem of the robe and will not let go. So what do we learn about discipleship from this passage? I want to suggest that discipleship has three ingredients. I'm going to, this is really simple stuff here. I'm going to give you, it's like a recipe. Three ingredients and three things that you have to do. It's like, it's like a recipe. And I want to suggest that discipleship has time, word, and relationship. These are the three ingredients. The, these ingredients have not changed since the first century, uh, up until the 21st century. So time, we really see that in the example of Elijah and Elisha, don't we? Elijah says, you can stay here, it's okay. And Elisha says, no, I'm going to go with you. And I think about that with my own experience with Paul down in Puebla, Mexico, you know, where we would just spend time together. We were not, not always doing spiritual things. I think of Jesus and the disciples, you know, we have the parables and the teachings and stuff like that that he would say to them, but I'm sure a lot of their life was just some of the chores that they had to do. And we actually get some of those in the, in the Gospels, don't we? Um, go into town and buy some food. Okay. 
um, go and you're going to find this guy. He's going to be carrying a jar and, you know, set up the arrangements for Passover supper. Okay. So it's actually living life together. And in many ways, I think for people today, this is the hardest one. I know in the United States, this is particularly difficult because Americans tend to be so time-focused. And time is often, by many people, considered to be their, their most important asset. I know that's not like that for every culture here. Um, but that's a weakness, I think, in American culture. And the second one is word. And this is the one that we tend to focus on. I remember once I was working with a church, and the, the senior pastor there said, let's have a discipleship class. And basically what he meant was, let's just do a Bible study and call it discipleship. Now, studying the Word is very good, and it's very necessary, but that's not exactly how you learn how you can become an apprentice, is it? Have you ever thought, have you ever learned something like how to cook baeja or how to change brakes on a car? It's not the kind of thing that you learn by, uh, by reading a book or listening to a talk. It's the kind of thing that you learn by watching a person do it, and then after you watch them a few times, then you try it, and they can correct you. They can say, well, you did this thing well, but this other thing, you, you know, you missed a step. And then once you're really good at doing it, they say, okay, I have taught you what I can teach you. You can go off, and you can teach people once you're really skilled. And, and I think of that when we read this uh, passage in, in Timothy, all the advice that Paul is giving there, it's stuff that Timothy would have seen Paul suffer through in his own ministry. You learn a lot more about Christian suffering, endurance, and patience from being with a Christian who suffers endurance and patience, but in a graceful and thankful manner, in a way that's full of faith. You learn a lot more by seeing a person live that and going through that with them than you will probably ever by listening to a sermon or a talk. So that is time, word, and that's the other part, the relationship. Relationship. And I think we really see that with Elijah and Elisha, that aspect of the relationship. Here's a beautiful picture of uh, Jesus at Gethsemane. Let me talk a little bit about vulnerability. The word vulnerable comes from the Latin vulna, which means wound. So if we are vulnerable, that means that we are placing ourselves in a position where that relationship is so close that we could be wounded. And I was thinking about Jesus during the time of his greatest tribulation and suffering as he was heading up to the cross. And right here, the Gethsemane crying tears of blood. And his friends, what did they do? His disciples, they fell asleep. Okay, here's a weird question. Do you think that hurt his feelings? Would that hurt your feelings? We don't usually talk about Jesus' feelings, but he had feelings. He was like us in every way, but without sin. That's what Hebrews clearly says. I think that must have really hurt his feelings. It must have really made him sad. So discipleship is dangerous. It is risky because it's not like, you know, a client-employee uh, client sort of relationship. It is sharing life, and it, especially because it is focused around Christ. So we have to place ourselves in a position where we can be hurt. So discipleship is risky. But it's also rewarding. Elisha asks Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. Now, a lot of people don't understand correctly what that means. In the Torah, 
when a man died, his inheritance was divided in a very specific way. So if he had four children, they would divide the inheritance into five sections. Number of children plus number of sons plus one. And the firstborn would receive a double portion. So some people think that Elisha is saying, I want to be twice the prophet that you were, Elijah. That's not what's going on here. Elisha is saying, I want to be, in terms of spiritual authority and in terms of in, as the prophet of Israel, I want people to know that I'm your firstborn son. Wow. Now, does Paul ever do that? Say, I became a father to you in Christ Jesus. Ooh. Now, we don't have the tradition in the Baptist church and even evangelical churches of calling our pastors father. That's fine. I'm not saying we should do that. But, I mean, the idea there, the idea is there. You know, the idea is one that Paul uses, and we find that also with Elijah and Elisha. I want a double portion of your spirit. What you have asked is a difficult thing. And then he is taken up into heaven, and he tears his clothes, which in, which in uh, Hebrew culture, what does that mean? It's a sign of mourning. He's sad. He's sad because his master, his teacher, uh, has left. So that relationship is a relationship of vulnerability. And then I want to take a look at Luke 10. I'm not going to read this whole passage. Most of you have probably heard this from uh, time to time. It's a common passage. But we actually see Jesus doing these different steps, right? Modeling, then sending out and kind of reviewing the progress. And then at the end, saying, okay, I've taught you what I'm going to teach you. You guys go ahead and do the same thing. So the Lord appoints the 72. So this is pretty clear that he has more disciples beyond the 12. The 12 were sort of the inner circle, if you will. And he appoints them to go out. And he says, um, as, uh, where is it? I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Then he gives them basically the instructions to go and do the things that they had seen him doing. What, what was Jesus doing? Proclaiming the gospel, healing people, uh, exercising demons, stuff like this. And he says, you guys go do the same thing. And they go out and they do it. Now, it's a short-term mission, two by two, in the towns of Judea. And then they come back. And then we would have what we call a debriefing, right? A debrief. What is that? That's Well, you talk about your experience. What went wrong? What went right? Now, we only have a little tiny section of the debriefing here, but I imagine that they must have talked about this stuff for hours and hours or even days. What worked? What didn't work? What could we do better? And they came back, and they were joyful. They were joyful. They were rejoicing because um, it's not here but because uh, they had been able to copy Jesus and do what Jesus had told them to do. So here's the method. I gave you the ingredients. What were the ingredients? Time, word, relationship. Yeah, time, word, and relationship. And here's the method. It's a very simple method. And the thing I love about this, about the way that discipleship works, is that it's, it works in different cultures. It worked in 13th century Spain when it was still largely pagan. It worked in 1st century Judea. It works in 21st century United States of America or Kenya or Ghana or China. Or, I mean, the method is simple, and it works. The first one is give the example. The second one is empower and review. And the third one is commission and send.
Now there's some small print. Does this always work? What do we know? What do we know even from Jesus' own disciples? Does it always work? Is, is this 100% of the time it's going to work every time? No. Even of Jesus' own disciples, one of them was not faithful. So this is a thing. Remember how I said it's risky, and it's not a sure thing, but it's a good thing. It's a risky investment because there's a lot of time that goes into this. Um, and discipleship can be one-on-one or it can be in small groups like the young guys from Iglesia Bíblica Fuente de Vida back in Puebla, Mexico. Um, or it can be uh, one-on-one. Um, but it's not a sure thing. And here is a beautiful uh, kind of terrifying sculpture. What is that? That is Judas kissing Jesus. That's in the Church of St. John Lateran in Rome. And look how Jesus looks so sad because he knows. He knows what's going on, doesn't he? Another thing, and we get this from Elijah and Elisha, is that the disciple might not resemble the mentor. The disciple might not resemble the mentor. What, was, uh, what were like the high points of Elijah's ministry? Calling down fire from heaven and confronting King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And I mean, really you know, going against the idolatry of, of the people of Israel. But then when we look at Elisha's ministry, and you can read about it, just keep on reading 2 Kings, read chapters 3 and 4. What was Elisha's ministry like? It was really quite different than Elijah's ministry. It was a lot of helping people in towns. Um, he had students around them. Back then, apparently, they had roaming groups of prophets. We don't really have that today. <laughs> But Elisha was part of some of these different groups. So the disciple might not resemble the mentor. And that's okay. We're not about making photocopies. We're about making disciples ultimately for Christ. Uh, and as, as we know, you know, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And the third thing is that it might look like a failure. It might look like a failure. Sometimes we invest time in a person or people. And after... Sometime, maybe a couple of months or a couple of years, they say, well, you know, I'm just not really interested. Thanks, but no thanks. Okay. But can I tell you that I have met many people over the years, and I especially ran into this when I was doing my doctoral research on converts from Islam to Christianity. When sometimes 10 or 15 years would pass before the fruit of discipleship was really seen in someone's life. Uh, I remember reading a testimony of, of a person, I think it was an Iraqi, who uh, became a, a Christian from a, and converted from Islam when he was in his 30s or 40s. And uh, he was asked, why, why did you do this? You know, how did you hear the gospel? He said, well, when I was a kid, our neighbors were Armenian Christians. And so I used to love going to their house because they treated each other with compassion and kindness, and they were friendly to me, and it was not like my own home. And then someone said, well, so then that was how you became a Christian? He said, no, 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 it was, it was a lot, it was, you know, two decades later when I was working in the United States and someone invited me to church. And I thought about that Armenian family. And I thought, okay, I am going to go to church, even though I was kind of uncomfortable about it. So that, it took a long time, right? It took a while to kind of percolate and to kind of, kind of like slow cooking. I like slow cooking. Um, so it might look like a failure, but, you know, God knows stuff that we don't know. God has a whole timeline that we are not aware of. That's okay. So don't be, don't be discouraged. Well, there's the conclusion. So this is the ascension. Um, 
And uh, I, I thought of the ascension because this is one of the things that Jesus says in, uh, in Acts, right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. And there are the disciples. They're kind of startled. They don't really know what to do about this. But they are going to be his witnesses, just like we are to be his witnesses. Three ingredients and three steps. So I want to finish this time with a challenge. Because you'll notice there's a word there, intentionality. You know, Jesus didn't say to Peter and Andrew, like, hey, it was nice meeting you guys. Maybe I'll see you around. What did he say to them? Put down your nets. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Discipleship needs to have an intentional element. You know, Paul sat down and he wrote letters. He wrote letters sometimes to churches, sometimes to individuals, because he knew that these people were in some way his disciples. Follow me as I follow Christ. And they had all sorts of issues that they were dealing with. He was intentional. He didn't say, well, somebody else will take care of this. So my challenge for us for 2024 is this. You pray, find two or three people that God has placed in your life. Now, let me also say this. Disciple-making doesn't have to begin when someone is already a Christian. Well, you get that? Did, did you ever notice the Great Commission? Go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Were Peter and Andrew believers? Did they understand the gospel when they started to follow Jesus? Mm, no. So discipleship can begin before conversion. I think that's actually really important. So don't think you have to have someone who's already a Christian. You just have to have someone like Peter and Andrew who's saying, well, I don't really get what's going on here, but I'm curious. I'd like to learn more. And go ahead and live life with them. But we have to be intentional. So... Brothers and sisters, that's what I got for today. Discipleship. How did Jesus plan for his kingdom, the movement of his kingdom, the visible community of the kingdom of God, which we call the church, to get to the ends of the earth? This was it. It was discipleship. And we are called to be part of this ongoing work today. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the examples of Elijah and Elisha, we thank you for the examples of Jesus with his disciples, with the 12. We thank you for the example of Paul with people around him like Timothy. We thank you even for examples like Moses and Joshua. We thank you because you have given us the ability to make apprentices, to live the Christian life, to invest time, to be vulnerable, and to show what the Christian life actually looks like to other people so that they will be able to follow you, that they will be able to learn what it is to follow Christ, and then they will be able to make disciples. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to give our hearts and our minds wisdom. Lord, who have you placed in our lives so that we can do what Elijah did and what Jesus did and what Paul did and what no doubt people have done with us in our own lives? Oh, Lord, who do you want us to be intentional about spending time with them and sharing life with them in a vulnerable relationship, studying your word, and not only studying it, but modeling what it means to live according to your word. Help us, Lord. Give us your strength. I think if all of us did this, Lord, I think, I don't know, I, th I think this congregation could double in a year. But Lord, we thank you. Give us your grace, give us your wisdom, and give us your perseverance. 
Give us patience because discipling requires patience. And help us, Lord, to follow the command that our Lord Jesus gave us. Amen.